Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Biology with me, Mossin. In this series, I'll be talking about all things neuroscience. In today's episode, I'll be delving into the past theories and ideologies which surround neuroscience. I believe that it's important to delve into past knowledge of any discipline, as this allows us to see the journey and how knowledge has evolved through many centuries. It's almost like being sucked into a story. Now, you may think neuroscience is a fairly recent field in biology, or that's what I thought initially. However, the concept of understanding and studying the brain dated back all the way to the time of Hippocrates. Now, scientists believe that the earliest signs of activity with the brain were almost 7,000 years ago. Scientists found a 7,000-year-old skull with fatal cranial damage, which suggests that people were experimenting with the skull. People were boring holes into each other's skull, a process called trepanation, which evidently was used to cure, not kill. Those skulls show sign of healing, which indicates this process occurs when the person is living rather than a post-death ritual, which was more common at that time. This is almost like prehistoric surgery. However, during this time, the heart was seen as the seat of the soul and memories and was carefully reserved when someone died compared to the brain, which was scooped out. But the most important bit is that people had an idea that if someone was acting oddly, oddly or their behaviour was weird, it was something that got to do with the brain. That's why they tried to manipulate the skull or bore holes to see what effect it has. Now, remember, this was 7,000 years ago. Now, moving on to ancient Greece, there's this idea that different parts of the body looks different as they serve different functions, i.e. our hands and feet have different structures for different purposes. Our hands have longer fingers and thumbs for manipulation of objects. Our feet are more broad for stability when walking. The next question was, what's the purpose of the head? By quick inspection and experiment, and I mean rather simple experiments, they concluded that the head was used for sensing the environment. Our eyes were used for sight, our nose was used for sense of smell. By dissection, they found nerves from the nose and the eyes and other organs in the face, all leading to the brain. Hippocrates used all this and concluded that the brain is an organ of sensation and intellect. Here's a quote from Hippocrates. Men ought to know that from nothing else but the brain comes joys, delights, laughter and sports, and sorrows, griefs, despondency and lamentations. And by this, in an especial manner, we acquire wisdom and knowledge, and see and hear and know what are foul and what are fair, what are bad and what are good, what are sweet and what are unsavoury. And by the same organ, we, we become mad and delirious, and fears and terrors assail us. All these things we endure from the brain when it is not healthy. In these ways, I am of the opinion that the brain exercises the greatest power in the man. Now, this quote is very important. It's the idea that Hippocrates appreciates that joys and delights and all these emotions have to come from the brain. Without the brain, it cannot happen. However, there's this other side that the brain is also in, in control of the bad emotion, the fears, the terrors in people, the delirious behaviours. Now, this might, this might be that the fact that Hippocrates has experienced maybe these behaviours or he has seen someone with those bad behaviours and he must think that it must be from the brain. Now, there's Aristotle. Aristotle believed intellect was from the heart and the brain was a radiator for cooling the body from its shape almost cloudy shape from overheating due to the heart which was the most common and overriding idea of the function of the brain and the heart as well at that time moving on to the roman empire 
During the Roman Empire, a very important figure in Roman medicine was the Greek physician Galen, who embraced Hippocrates' view of the brain function. Galen loved dissecting the brain of the sheep. Two major parts were discovered from the dissections. The front was the cerebrum and the back was the cerebellum. Just as we can deduce the functions of the hands and feet from structures, Galen tried to deduce the function of the cerebrum and cerebellum. By poking on the brain, Galen found that the cerebrum was soft and the cerebellum was relatively harder. From this, Galen concluded that the cerebrum receives sensations and the cerebellum commands the muscles. Why this distinction? He recognised that memories and sensations must be imprinted and stored in the brain, so it must be in the softer areas as it's much easier. Now this is not far from the truth. In fact, the cerebrum largely deals with sensation and perceptions, and the cerebellum is primarily for movement and a control centre. This is one of many parts of the history of neuroscience, in which the right general conclusions were made for the wrong reasons, though. Now, how did the brain receive those sensations? Galen found ventricles inside the brain and fluid in the brain. This fits perfectly with the existing theory that the body functioned according to a balance of four vital fluids, or humours they called, the humoral theory. Sensations were registered by the movement of this fluid from the ventricles via the nerves, which were believed to be like capillaries in the body, but just for the brain. Galen's views of the brain prevailed for almost 1,500 years. During the Renaissance up until the 19th century, the great anatomist Andreas Vesalius added more details to the brain functions. However, the ventricular theory, the idea that the fluid receives sensation, was strengthened due to the hydraulic machines invented by the French inventors. This supported the notion that the brain could be machine-like in its function. The fluid forced out from the ventricles, travels through the nerves, could literally pump you up and cause movements in the limbs. After all, muscles bulge when contracting, so this could be due to the fluid. René Descartes was a chief advocate for the fluid mechanical theory. Descartes believed the theory explains the brain's behaviour in animals, but cannot fully explain the behaviours in humans, as humans have a God-given intellect. Descartes believed humans, uniquely unlike any animals, have mental capabilities outside the brain in the mind. Hence the quote, I think, therefore I am. This debate of the brain and mind still goes on today and will be touched upon later in my next episode about neuroscience and the present times. During the 17th and 18th century, people got away from the ventricular theory and dissected the brain more carefully when they found grey and white matter. What relationship did they have? It was correctly believed that white matter contains the fibres that bring information to and from grey matter. During the end of the 18th century, the nervous system was completely dissected and scientists recognised that the system contains two main divisions, the brain and the spinal cord being the central division and the network of nerves around the whole body being the peripheral division. The greatest discovery at that time was that the bumps and grooves on the brain can be identified on the surface of the brain in every individual and the brain can be split into lobes and therefore the idea of localised function on the brain was introduced and now we are set for the era of cerebral localization. Let's recap the understanding of the brain at the end of the 18th century. Injury of the brain can disrupt sensation, movement and thought, could even cause death. The brain communicates with the body via nerves. The brain has different identifiable parts, e.g. the cerebrum and the cerebellum, which performs different functions. And lastly, the brain operates like a machine. 
During the 19th century, Italian scientists Luigi Galvani and German biologist Emile Dubois Raymond had shown that the muscles twitch when nerves are stimulated by electricity and the brain itself can generate electricity. These discoveries finally displaced the idea of fluid communicating sensations to the brain. The new concept was that the nerves are wires and conduct electrical signals to and from the brain. Later on, a Scottish scientist, Charles Bell, discovered that the nerves split into two directions when connecting with the spinal cord. These are known as the dorsal and the ventral roots. By cutting each root separately, he found that when you cut the ventral roots, this caused muscle paralysis. So therefore, ventral roots send impulses from the spinal cord to the muscles. Another French physiologist found that the dorsal roots carry sensory information to the spinal cord. Around 1823, French physiologist Marie-Jean Pierre used a method called experimental ablation, which is a method that involved different parts of the brain being systematically destroyed to work out the function of that specific part of the brain. He conducted this experiment on brains of different animals. During the time, Franz Joseph Gall, an Austrian medical student, came up with phonology, the idea that different bumps on the skull can tell you different things about your personality. E.g. if the size of the back of your skull was relatively bigger, then you received more parental love. As you can see, this idea was completely wrong, but it was very popular at the time to the public. The scientist who properly proved cerebral localization was Paul Broca, who was introduced to a patient who could understand language but could not speak the language. Broca examined the brain after the patient died and found damage to the left of the frontal lobe. After several other similar cases, Broca concluded this area was responsible for the production of speech and now is called Broca's area. During 1859, Charles Darwin published The Origin of Species, which revolutionised biology as a whole. Darwin included behaviours as a heritable trait and observed different reactions of fear in different animals and found that they are similar to humans. And behaviour stems from the nervous system, therefore the nervous system must be similar to humans. This allowed scientists to conduct studies on animals such as rats to reflect the nervous system of humans. Later advances in microscopy allowed scientists to see the structure of nerves and that the nerves are connected to each other by synapses. This is known as the neuron doctrine. In the next episode we'll be talking about the advances in neuroscience during the 20th and 21st century and talk about the current scientists and their experiments to dig even deeper into what we know about the brain. Thank you so much for reaching the end of this episode and I hope you find the topics very interesting and research deeper into the ideologies of the past. Please make sure to follow my Instagram page at Let's Talk Biology where there will be diagrams corresponding to each episode to deepen your understanding.